fellow fiends. Welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John, and today we are talking about Guillermo del Toro. Del Surprizo. Oh, yeah, <laughs> We've had Guillermo del Toro on the brain with the release of Shape of Water last week, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've been on our Instagram feed or our Facebook feed or even the Facebook group, but we recently hit up the At Home with Monsters exhibit and... Yeah, it has been Guillermo del Toro fever up in here. Yeah, we've we've really been overloading ourselves with Guillermo del Toro, and I'm super happy about it. It's been great. At the time of this recording, we have not seen Shape of Water yet, and I am so fucking excited to see it. Yeah, I don't know if it's gotten a limited release everywhere, but it was supposed to open, the night we're recording this, it was supposed to open in Canada, and it's very, very limited. There's only one theater that's like 50 minutes away. I didn't want to say an hour because that would have been exaggerating too much. Oh, okay. That, that, that 10 minutes we really don't want to go for Well, it's an hour if you have to find parking, pay for parking, put your ticket in your car, and then walk to the theater. Like, it was, it would be an hour, but... Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed. I There's this theater near us that just got these reclining chairs. And <laughs> uh, at first I hated them. We saw Orient Express there, and we didn't realize we were getting these weird chairs. And I was not with it the whole movie. But then after, we went and saw another movie at our regular Cineplex with the shitty regular theater seating. And I was like, mm, my recliner chair. You've been spoiled now. You can't go back. Yeah, and the thing is, is I didn't even like it initially. I was like, this is weird. Why am I lying down while watching a movie. I was so at home with it so fast. As soon as that footrest went up, I was like, I'm home. This is the best. <laughs> I kept looking over at you too because I was like, John won't make it through this. This is John Kryptonite. He won't, will not be awake at the end of this movie. Surprisingly, you were. It's probably because you had popcorn. It's so. bound to happen soon. I've, I've fallen asleep at movies in really uncomfortable seats. I just kind of fall asleep everywhere. It's a, it's a move of mine. <laughs> yeah, you're a step above narcolepsy because I think with you, there's a moment of acceptance beforehand, <laughs> where it's just like, no, I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm not going to... Yeah, me. you know what? Yeah. <laughs> Who am I trying to impress here? And that's really, like, in the checkbox of do you have narcolepsy or not? Yeah, but do you consent to the sleep? And you are 100% like, yeah, yeah, I do. Therefore, no narcolepsy. Yeah, I've fallen asleep. I've fallen asleep in the car before, like at red lights. But I don't know if that's... That is terrifying. I know. As a frequent passenger of yours, <laughs> fuck me. Anyway, I'm really excited to see that movie. Um, oddly enough, by the time this episode comes out, we we'll will... have seen it. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll already have had our review. So, welcome to time travel, guys. This is how it works. We had to pre-game Shape of Water, and we also had to post-game the Guillermo del Toro at Home with Monsters exhibit, which is currently in Toronto. 
until January. Yeah, like first week of January. January eighth, I think. And I was mistaken. I thought it was touring everywhere, but Guillermo del Toro did an interview with I think it was Screen Rant a few weeks ago, and he said that nope, he wants his shit back. He misses it. So it's only gone to the museum in Minneapolis, the L.A. museum, Toronto, and then I think it's gonna make a brief stop in Mexico because that is home for Del Toro, and then it's going back to Bleak House. So I feel super excited and proud that we got it. You know, Toronto's pretty big on art, but I don't know why he picked Toronto. Maybe he just likes Toronto. Who knows? Who knows? Point is, we're I'm glad going we got again. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, we're going again. So today we are going to talk about two early Guillermo del Toro works. Both I would consider companion films. We're going to talk about 2001's Devil's Backbone. And 2006's Pan's Labyrinth. But before we get into those films, we're going to do our sort of what's keeping us creepy segment and talk a little bit more about At Home with Monsters, the exhibit. I cannot get this fucking exhibit out of my mind. Honestly, just like during the day when I'm bored, I just kind of walk through it in my head. Like, as it goes, I just scan through photos I took that, for some reason, I just refuse to post on Instagram. I don't know why. I'm keeping them for myself, I guess. I have (laughs) no idea. Yeah, we spent about two hours walking through the exhibit when we went, and I need to go back. Like, there's so much I didn't get to see, and... It's kind of like a, just a sensory overload. There, The walls are filled with art that's been hand-curated by Guillermo del Toro and is in his house. Plus, he's got artifacts and Victorian history and stills from movies and all kinds of vintage stuff. There's costumes. There's sculptures. It's insane how big the exhibit was. I thought it was only going to be a couple rooms, mm-hmm. and you just keep going to new areas, and it's thousands of pieces. Yeah. Thousands. It's insane. If you're unfamiliar with the tour or with Bleak House itself, it's more or less Guillermo del Toro's studio, quote-unquote. He's not necessarily doing any filming there, but it's where he does all of his writing, it's where he does his work, it's where he gains his inspiration. Walking through that is, is like walking through the mind of the creator and where he finds his inspiration. It's invigorating, but it's also so overwhelming. In what sense? I don't know. He just seems like such a completely defined person in in terms of inspiration and art. And there's kind of like a method to his madness. There's a formula for Guillermo del Toro. I, I kind of see it now after walking through his house, essentially. Mm, yeah. And I feel like I float in existence compared to somebody who's so defined. Mm. He just is. He's a little bit morbid. He's a little bit gothic fairy tale. He's a little Disney. He's a little fantasy. I just, I wish I could be as definitive as he is. Very envious. Because those aesthetics are so inspiring to me personally because they're all things that I think that I try to achieve in my own interests. Mm. And it's it's great to see him being so successful and being so outside of the norm. Yeah. I, I'm going to assume, I'm going to guess that he's going to get an Oscar this year, either for directing or for film for Shape of Water. I can just kind of, you can just kind of tell with the buzz. Having not seen it yet. Having not seen it. I'm feeling Shape of Water, John. I'm feeling it. And I... Can you imagine if this year fucking Doug Jones gets an Academy Award? Maybe supporting. Either way, I'm guessing 
he's going to get an Oscar this year. And at least a nod. He's at least going to get nominated for Best Film. I would expect it. Best Screenplay and probably Best Director. <laughs> Again, I, I just love saying, have not seen the film. No, but you can tell by the buzz. Everybody that's seen it loved it. And everybody's talking about it. it's the best film of the year. Yeah. At least in like the film circle. And those are the people who are fucking voting. So That's true. And to hear them say it about a genre movie, it's got to be fucking incredible, right? Yeah. I I haven't seen the film yet, so I don't really want to talk on it. You'll hear about that last week. Um, <laughs> I'm so proud of him, even though I'm like in. I have no claims to Guillermo del Toro whatsoever. But Not as somebody who's weird at my core, he is so inspiring. Yeah, he's he's a macabre kid who made good. Yeah, he is also weird at his core, and I don't think you can't scrub the weird out of him. He does studio films, but they're all kind of on the edge of what they are. He's done a superhero film. He's in a vampire movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's done kind of a alien attacky movie? Is that what Pacific Rim is? Because I haven't seen it. Uh, it sci-fi-ish. You could call it a creature feature. It's essentially robots versus Godzilla. Which is sci-fi. Yeah. They're all his aesthetic. They yeah. all look like him. The, the vampires in Blade 2 look like Guillermo del Toro made them. Mm -hmm. Hellboy, it's got this steampunky look that could only come from the mind of somebody who's who lives in that world that he does. Yeah, like a, like a gothic alchemist. For me, it's kind of like a fusion of timelines. He's got this love of the old and the new, which is something I don't think I would have noticed initially. I think it was from walking through the exhibit that I realized he's got a lot of really old and valuable art. He's got original stills from Disney, from Sleeping Beauty, crazy Victorian photographs. And then there's a lot of art from the last 10 years. Yeah. From unknown artists, from indie artists, from bigger artists. But they're all mixed and blended together and there's no, this is from the 1800s and this is from yeah. the 1900s. And you'll just look at a piece and you're like, this is amazing. You're like, this is from last year. And that's something I don't think I ever gave him credit for. But in looking back, he's always kind of embraced CGI when it warrants. He's mm -hmm. very good on using practical effects and using puppets and actors. But he's not opposed to using modern technology. And I I really noticed that in watching Pan's Labyrinth is that he really embraced CGI. And that was a pretty... 2006 is not like it's new, new, but it still holds up. It's a little out of date now, but I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's like everything's on a level playing field. There is no hierarchy in any of the art, right? Like, you've got you've got original artwork from comic books next to, like, a gothic oil painting. I fucking love it. Outside of the photographs of, like, the women cloaked in black holding up babies, which is apparently just a normal photograph that we look at now as thinking, like, a fucking ghost is holding that baby. Uh, I think my favorite, absolute favorite piece of that exhibit is the Eternal Rain Room? I don't know what it's called. I think it's just called the Rain Room. Is it called the Rain Room? Guys, in Guillermo del Toro's house, the Bleak House, which is named after a Charles Dickens novel that I must fucking read, he has a room where he likes to write that he has rigged up so that way it's always a stormy night. It's dark, there's lightning, there's thunderclaps, there's rain pelting the glass. Sometimes when I write, I have to do it with a dog on my lap snoring. I would, I dream of a quiet room, let alone a room that's fucking raining. That's amazing. Right? Uh, it just sounds like the coolest, most haunted library 
that you have free reign in. And even as an exhibit, to add that extra sensory experience was really cool to walk in a room where it's just raining quietly while you're looking at art. Also, while you're walking through the exhibit, there's a classical piano piece playing the entire time, and then when you turn the corner to one of the last rooms, there's a grand piano there and there's somebody playing it. Yeah. It's not just a soundtrack that's piped into the system. No, it's there's live just a, music. There's just a guy playing a grand piano for everybody to just look at art. And we went at 10 in the morning, and I was hungover as fuck <laughs> on a Sunday morning. And they made me get rid of my water because it was an art museum. So I was dying, and there's just, like, classical music playing, and I'm like, I need sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> so classy. But if you want to see more from our experience at the Guillermo del Toro at Home with Monsters exhibit, head to our social media, hit us up on Instagram at Nightmare on Film Street or Facebook slash Nightmare on Film Street and check out all of the amazing photos. It was so fucking cool. Also, we're going back at the end of the month, so there'll probably Definitely. be more photos very soon. Yeah, by the time this episode comes out, you should see some fresh photos. <laughs> but let's get into the movies. We are talking about two films today. We'll start with the first movie on the docket, Devil's Backbone from 2001. Usted, fantasma? Currently sitting at a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, and 3 out of 4 Eberts. Did you read that Ebert review? I did read that Ebert, Ebert review. Ebert fucking loved this movie. Ebert eh? really liked this movie. And the, the same things that he points out are the same things that I, I am attracted to in Guillermo del Toro's films. Yeah, I felt reading that review, it could have, you could have erased Devil's Backbone and put Crimson Peak. Because it, what his real kind of commentary was on was how you're using ghosts as a venue to tell a story about humanity. They're not just for shock value. Yeah, and fuck do I love that. Yeah, it, it, it's the same with any horror movie, right? Like, I find any time where you have a monster who has a purpose and has a backstory and a history, that's the one you're most interested in. Except when it's just, oh, it's a ghost because ghosts are scary, right? And he finds such human stories to put into his ghosts. It's almost like we forget that ghosts used to be people. Like, at least in the world where ghosts exist. Yeah. The ghosts, especially in Devil's Backbone and Crimson Peak, are literally just one step away from you. Never are they really trying to terrify you because their their eternal existence now is to petrify people. It's just that they're like, hey, uh, I can see the future and you need to watch out. But it's not even that. It's just like, I can see that the past is going to repeat itself. Oh. And this is something that maybe I know a little bit more about if you could see the blood oozing out of my head like a ghost thing. Oh, man. The cool thing about kind of the modern day ghost story is it is essentially a modern day fable or a modern day fairy tale that's what we have for modern day our superstitions and our eerie beliefs and it's cool to see him take modern day ghost stories and retell them like a fairy tale that's kind of what a ghost story is a lot of it is passing along rumors especially with like the setting of an orphanage where you have a whole bunch of boys being like that's the ghost of the little boy that died and they're all imagining these whispers and these sounds which is 
kind of how fables existed. Before there were books and libraries, there were shepherd boys who would tell stories to each other and they would just travel across lands. Yeah. If it's been a little while since you've seen The Devil's Backbone, uh, we follow Carlos, who's just been brought to a boys' orphanage right at the end of the Spanish Civil War. The orphanage itself is more or less just a house of children of leftist-leaning families, uh, military members, people in politics who are have either been killed or are in the war effort right now. A lot of these kids, yeah, they are orphans because their parents have been murdered or whatever in, in the war. But for the most part, it is just kind of a hideout for kids that they're trying to protect. They put a crucifix up on the building to make it look as though it's a Catholic school. But realistically, it's just a hideout. You kind of realize right away that they're not really running the traditional orphanage. There's only three, well, four adults there. It's not like they're running a schoolhouse for boys. I mean, there's there's a little bit where they're trying to, like, teach them and stuff, but it's kind of a little free-for-all. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Carlos has been brought there by his tutor, which is which is interesting that it's his tutor because we realize that this guy is kind of like a a rebel. He's part of like the guerrilla warfare effort that's trying to take down uh, the nationalist regime that's threatening to control the country. Obviously, he is the new kid, and nobody really likes him all that much, except for the kids that want to trade their snot marbles for his comic books. <laughs> it's gross. I don't want to talk about it I think it it's much. kind of just like a boys will be boys minute, though. They kind of have to warm up to him. At first, they kind of all hate him, and then he proves that he's cool and worthy of street cred. Yeah. And then he's in. And you can't tell whether or not they're trying to scare him by saying, like, oh... This place is haunted. There's a ghost that's here. Or if it's actually true, we learn pretty quickly that, yeah, there's a fucking ghost living in the goddamn orphanage, knocking over everybody's water dishes in the middle of the night. Yeah. How fucking ominous is that? Yeah. And he sees footprints in it, and he knows there's something more that's going on, but they seem to think he's the one that's spilling the water, because fucking new kid's an asshole. Despite the fact that he's got wicked-ass comic books and toys, I guess? These kids literally have nothing, by the way. Yeah, they do have them. The kids in the orphanage, again, snot marbles. Like, all they have are marbles, and then another one that is just years of snot, just compacted with dirt. I can't, I don't know, I don't know why I can't get over that, but... I'm I like, just... stop talking about the <laughs> snot marble. It has nothing to do with the plot. Well, the point is, these kids have zero possessions. They have nothing. There's, like, nothing even for them in the school. It's just dirt and wind. That's all they have. That and a fucking bomb, by the way, that is a centerpiece in the school. Yeah, and talking about the bomb... <laughs> Speaking of the bomb... It stresses me out... Okay. <laughs> ...the entire movie. And I'd seen this film, I watched this film back when I had my like, little uh, Guillermo del Toro obsession after I saw Pan's Labyrinth for the first time. I mm -hmm. kind of sought out his films. And I watched this, and I don't know why I didn't remember that fucking bomb, because the entire time watching it this go-around, it's definitely a metaphor for a sense of dread, or like the war being at your door. And also, like, there's so many metaphors. It's a ticking time bomb. But it gives me literal anxiety to see them all tapping on the bomb, putting their ears up to the bomb, walking back and forth past the bomb pretending the bomb isn't there and they're just like oh somebody deactivated i'm like i didn't see no see no scene where somebody deactivated therefore i do not believe that bomb has been deactivated and i know it's a metaphorical bomb even though it's a physical bomb but the physical nature of the bomb gives me stress <laughs> i could barely watch the movie because of that damn bomb <laughs> And I think great. it's beautiful. No, I think it's a great metaphor. And to have that just existing quietly in your entire movie is artistic genius. And I think it's amazing. But 
it stressed me out. That's fine. It did what it was supposed to Didn't do. Didn't it stress you out? I mean, like, yeah, Did you have bomb bit. anxiety? Well, I, I knew that the bomb wasn't literally in my living room, so I was cool with it. I had such worries for those children. <laughs> <laughs> such concerns. And so you should. He's got no problem killing kids in his movies. Which, I mean, when I say it like that, it sounds like it's a sinister move. But realistically, he's making movies where it's the real world. Well, and the ghosts of children are the scariest ghosts of all. But I don't find his ghosts terrifying. I, I believe that the people who see them are scared, but nothing about them to me says, this is horrifying and I'm creeped out. They're always terrifying initially, and then you find out more about them and then they're less terrifying. But don't pretend that his ghosts are not scary as fuck because he is a great ghostsman. <laughs> I hope to one day be known as a great ghostsman. <laughs> I want that on my tombstone. I want to see that fucking Haunted Mansion movie, and I don't even... I will back it. I'm going to win the lottery, and I'm going to back that fucking movie, because I would love to see Guillermo del Toro's tour through the Haunted Mansion Cemetery. I want to see him doing the singing busts. I want to see him doing the doom buggies with the ghosts in the car with the reflection. Like, I need to see it. It needs to be real. I'm tired of imagining it. I want to see his Pinocchio. No, fuck that. I want to see his Adams family. I think his Pinocchio would actually probably be better. I think he's better suited to make the Pinocchio. Yeah, story. I mean it will be fun, but I want no. I want traditional horror. I want strict horror. You don't think that he could fucking horrify it Pinocchio? Would be, yeah, but uh, Pinocchio's not a story I give a fuck about. It could be. No, John. I said no. Here's the thing. <laughs> you already love the Adams family. You already love the haunted mansion. Give him a chance at selling you on fucking Pinocchio. I think it's like a Grimm's fairy tale. It could easily be dark as fuck. I don't like Pinocchio. So with the water pitchers knocked over, Carlos is now forced by the bully of the, the kids. We'll call him, like, the leader, Yeah, I guess. He's definitely a fucking the head bully. Wiener. The head wiener. <laughs> I like it. He forces Carlos to go into the pump house. Is that what you'd call it? Yeah. To get more water in the middle of the night. But, of course, Carlos basically says, like, well, you're a chicken if you don't come with me. And kid logic dictates, you ain't, you gotta, if somebody calls you a chicken, you gotta <laughs> prove you ain't no chicken. Yeah. You know, naturally, the, the bully goes along with it because he's gonna try and spook the kid. He tries to say that the bomb is still alive and you can hear it ticking away. We all think the bomb is still alive. <laughs> well, I, I, I think in terms of script writing and, <laughs> you know... The doom that is impending. Yes, that bomb is still alive. But once we get into the pump house, we hear something. And that's where we first start to see images of the ghost. Probably worth mentioning that at the beginning of the movie, uh, we do see that a boy has been killed. <laughs> By the way. Yeah. Opening credits of the film. Unrelated to anything else. All we know is that uh, somebody has been murdered and lowered into water. Yes. Well, we also, too, know that the new kid, Carlos, is taking bed number 12, which also used to be Santi's bed, mm -hmm. who is the boy that has gone missing died. <laughs> yeah. The one who sighs, as he's known. Why do the adults not address that there's a boy missing? Because never do Caesar or Carmen, the two heads of the orphanage, mm -hmm. kind of talk about the boy at all. Do they ever address that he's dead? When she's showing him to his bed and she's giving him the key to his locker, Carlos asks, why are there so many empty beds? And she says that, you know, some boys run away, but it's a day's walk to town, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Mm. So I, I guess they assume that he's run away. Like, a lot of them probably do. Yeah. That makes sense. They just considered him one of the kids that, that just left. Which okay. is so sad. Yeah. Damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's wartime. Like, <laughs> we can't take care of all these children. No. 
Yeah, they're trying to. They they really are. They're doing a great job, despite the fact that they don't want to. Well, speaking of that, we should kind of talk about one of the big metaphors of the movie, The Devil's Backbone, where the film gets its title. Mm-hmm. It's based on this, is it a condition that a fetus has where the spine isn't covered by skin yeah. or spine tissue? Is that what? Yeah, that's what it's called, yeah. Oh. Spina bifida sounds very common, because that's a, the term that is in my head. <laughs> well, I think it's it's kind of like having, I, again, I know very little about it, so like, excuse me for comparing it to something like this, but it's kind of like um, cleft palates. Like, it's something that we can, like, actually take oh, care of. Oh, because I was going to say, like, I've heard of people having spina bifida. Yeah, I think, like, there are some very serious cases where it's, like, life-altering, but I think it's something that you can kind of They, manage. like, graft. Man, I fucking know nothing about spina bifida okay. now that I'm thinking about it. I'm just going to put a but, footnote in that and Google it. What if it's done. fucking fade? We're just like, no, nah, that's fine. Well, the fact that it was, he was showing him a fetus in a jar, I assumed it was a genetic defect that happens at time of birth. But the weird thing is all of these fetuses are pickled in jars, as mm-hmm. fetuses are when you see them. And he's talking about the fluid. It's got a, a term. But the fluid that they pickle them in is rum and herbs and spices and stuff. It's kind of like a modern day... Um, they got a embalming fluid you get to drink. And he sells it to help keep the school afloat. Yeah. To people who treat it as like a cure for impotence and... They apparently for... treat it, they treat it as a cure for a lot of things. Yeah, it's kind of just this hooky kooky doctor juice and he tries to offer it to carlos when he's telling him about it and carlos is like well yeah he he does say that you know it's it's a cure-all more or less and he does kind of say to him that it'll do nothing but men who need courage and strength will drink it well and he also says that if you believe in something as frivolous as ghosts then you believe in the abilities of this hooky doctor juice and carlos is like ew gross and runs away is like i don't believe in ghosts no more yeah then the doctor drinks it see here's the thing though that doctor is the saddest character that i've seen in so long and he's impotent himself well i was just gonna say he's having problems with carmen who he loves and says poetry to through the walls and you know he doesn't believe it, but it's almost like he's buying a lottery ticket and doing that. Totally. That faith in, yeah, but in the one in one millionth shot that this would actually help, then by not, you know what I mean? Yeah, if there's one thing that that character believes in, it's hope. Like, and, and in fact, Carmen wants to leave. She says that, like, we, we need to go. The war is getting worse. We have to get out of here. And he says, like, well, it's not too late. Europe might intervene. France might come to our aid. Like, we know, based on history books, they sure as fuck don't. Mm. They do not intervene whatsoever. But it's his character that says, like, no, 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 things might improve. Things will maybe be better. And they never are. Uh, it's such a genius move to have him, with this moment of self-reflection, just take that shot. Where he, he knows it's going to do nothing, but in the off chance that it will, his life could be so much better. Like a lottery ticket. You're, you're right to describe it that way. Oh, man. There's so much to unpack in this movie. So we haven't even talked yet about Jacinto, the groundskeeper, who has his own fucking backstory. He was a orphan at the orphanage. He's grown up there. He's never left, basically. Mm-hmm. And now he's an adult who caters to the grounds. And he's a very resentful soul. Oh my god, right? His only dream is that he will one day be rich enough to come back and bulldoze the orphanage. Basically burn it down. Yeah. (laughs) And he's kind of having a fling with one of the teachers there. Yeah, Carmen the head of the... Oh, I meant the fling with the young girl. Oh, is she a teacher? I think so. Okay. I don't know what her other purpose is. I'm just going to assume she teaches. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) 
I like her in this movie. She's very pleasant. She doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't do a lot. <laughs> yeah, she's. She just gets to be pleasant. Well, there is that scene where the the bully kid who definitely has a crush on her, who up until recently definitely looked up to Jacinto, Jacinto, he has this wrapper from a cigar that he's holding on to, and he gives it to her because the wrapper and the emblem around it looks like a gold band, like a ring, and he gives it to this girl, basically like. Like, he's giving her a ring. And she finds it so charming. But when Yacinto sees it and says, like, what the hell is that? She's like, oh, it's just kid stuff. But, like, that fucking, like, wrapper means so much. Because she takes care of it. It doesn't tear. She wears it. She looks at it like it's a real ring. Like, it's really (laughs) fucking cute. And ultimately tragic. (laughs) But if she is his teacher, that is weird. But... (laughs) I suppose. They've got no access to the outside world. There's literally two women in this movie. Yeah. One of them is in her 60s or and something. And has one leg. So She's got one leg. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, not that I'm a legist or anything. <laughs> As Carlos gets used to the the school, he starts to learn more about this legend of the boy who sighs. People hear things. They they hear whispers, they hear words, they mostly hear sighing. Like there is a wandering spirit who is at unrest. Obviously, the teachers don't believe in it, and they try and talk him out of it to make him feel a little more at home while he's there. But one of my favorite scenes in this movie is where Carlos can hear the sighing, and we kind of cut over to Carmen, who's sleeping with Jacinto, and it's this really shameful thing that she's doing. And, you know, he kind of mocks her a little bit. Oh, they have such really good back and forth, Mm -hmm. where they talk about what he is to her, and how... She resents that she needs him physically. Yeah. Because she gets absolutely nothing from him emotionally. And she almost emotionally looks down on him. It's, oh, it's a weird scene. Like, and he's kind of only sleeping with her. At least now, he's only sleeping with her because he believes that there's treasure hidden somewhere in the orphanage. There's gold. And he's stealing keys from her to try and unlock a safe that he's found in the kitchen. But, you know, he's he's been unable to do so. And whenever he can steal away a key, he swaps it out for the one that he took the night before or whatever. But yeah, where he basically says that, you know, the old man can't essentially give you any sort of physical satisfaction. I'm the one who has to stand in for it. And the, sorry, the best part about that scene, I mean, the, the monologuing, the back and forth and stuff is great, but they previously set up how thin the walls are between her and his suites. Mm. And when Caesar, the older doctor, is at his mirror and I think he's about to recite her some poetry, he hears sighing through the walls. That's exactly what I was getting at. And this is right after the scene where Carlos was trying to tell him about seeing the ghost who sighs and that the ghost who sighs is real and he doesn't want to have any part of it and he kind of bought into this fable of the liquid that can cure anything and then he hears... This movie's so sad. Sighing, which is kind of the ghost of his life. Like, that's what's haunting him. Totally, right? That's exactly where I was going with this. Every character in this movie is so fucking tragic. Like, there is, there's, there is nothing, there is almost nothing uplifting about this movie. And yet it's really enjoyable to watch. Like, it's so poetically done, and it's presented well, and you genuinely feel for all of these characters. Even kind of, like, some of the assholes in the movie. Like, they all have full arcs. And it's funny, we don't really necessarily know much about, like, the villain, Jacinto, but apparently Guillermo del Toro basically wrote him an entire backstory and said, like, hey, this is what your parents did, this is what happened to you as a child here while you were at the orphanage. He he has the memories of a person that does 
doesn't exist and rather than giving it to us like we just see how that adult acts on screen yeah unfortunately in this movie he just comes off as a bit of like a cruella de vil and he just relentlessly comes back and comes back and comes back and any normal human being would probably just like fuck off he's he's too in the middle of the war and they're trying to flee because they know that war is coming to their door and they're not going to be safe yeah in meanwhile they have this asshole who got like a complete disregard for the world situation and is just hell-bent on getting the gold and burning the place down Mm -hmm. which he he does oh yeah he is almost like the tragedy that continues to repeat itself but as a as a character i don't know if i understand why he comes back with cronies I guess it's a pride thing. He comes back because he sees the gold. Like, he finally actually sees it. For the longest time, it's been a suspicion. It's been a hunch. He's just, he's known it was there, but only in his mind. He's never actually seen it. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he finally does see the gold and she locks the safe, he now knows that all that time searching and all that work he's put in and all all the time he's spent with her hasn't been wasted or hasn't been for nothing. Now he's got a purpose and he knows where it is. So he's just going to come back and he's going to get it with force. Yeah. Of course, as things start to spiral downward, we see that the the ghost is starting to relay more of its story to to Carlos and the boys. In fact, one of the boys witnessed the, the ghost's death. It was in the hands of Jacinto. He um, hid the body in the water, in the, the pump house, house. Right? Which is another... Oh, <laughs> that fetus juice, like, gets me so much. And then to find out that there's been the corpse of a boy in the water they've all been drinking this entire time. Changing it pink, the, the same as the rum that you would see the fetus is floating in. So fucking beautiful. <laughs> I do like that scene, though, where it's kind of a bit of a final showdown with the boys and Jacinto, and they've got spears, and they are just fucking stabbing that Yeah, dude, they right? are... That scene with the spears is such a lord of the flies moment it's kind of there's no adults left and that adult can't be trusted so it's yeah it's very like a rebel it's a rebel yell (laughs) (laughs) but yeah when they knock him into the water and we see we see like the physical body of the ghost come up and grab Yacinto. it is eerie it's like what lies beneath right like at the end of the movie where that girl comes and just takes harrison ford away it's great what did you think of the ghost design of Santi as, like, the boy who sighs? Um, it well, it's pretty early CGI, so, like, I don't want to judge it based on the CGI. They kind of went with this haunted doll look with, mm-hmm. like, cracked skin. I, I don't think I loved that. It was, it was a ghost. It was okay. I really loved the, the wound mm. leaking out, like, smoke and yeah. how it had, like, no gravity and it floated upwards. Right. That was fucking awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's something that we would see Guillermo del Toro return to in Crimson Peak, which, I mean, like, obviously, better CGI, modern day, Mm -hmm. looks a little better, but what a great fucking idea. Did you happen to read at all about the first drafts of the script and, like, how it sort of evolved? Just briefly. Okay. Well, the weirdest part is that originally it started with some sort of three-armed Christ figure, which was the ghost. That'd be fucking cool, though. See, what's really funny is that I thought you were joking when you said that that sounds great. No, you I want think... to see a three-armed Jesus Christ? Yes. Okay. Why? <laughs> so, okay. So, pitch meeting. We're in a room. Okay. I'm Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. I'm gonna write a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It's like little girl, queen of the underworld. Not important. Tasks. Three of them. One of the monsters is like 
this really, really fat guy who went on the Atkins diet, lost a bunch of weight too fast, lots of loose skin. Long story short, hands are eyes. Okay. On paper, that doesn't sound amazing. That sounds fucking weird. I guess. I'm just saying I trust the okay. creatures in his brain. I, I see what you're saying. Okay. I guess when I look at it, I think of, okay, it's a Christ figure with three arms. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which are essentially the Holy Trinity. So it's going to have way too much religion behind it. So I think, like, eh, whatever. I would trust him to make Jesus fucking creepy Yeah, but I think shit. it's a little sacrilegious to do that. So I'm, I'm on board with any message he wants to tell me using that figure. <laughs> Not so bad. By the way, did you happen to read anywhere that all of the main characters who are good have names that start with C, like Carlos, and others? Uh, I don't really remember. The, well, there's also Carmen, who is the head of the school. There's Caesar. Caesar. All the antagonists have letters, have names that start with J. Like there's Yame. Is it Yame, the bully? Is that his name? And Jacinto, which is really interesting because J and C... Definitely Jesus Christ. I don't really understand where he was going with that. I think that is maybe just something for himself that he was doing. But at one point he was talking about the ghost being a giant red creature from head to toe. Again, something that we would see in Crimson Peak. Like, it just shows to me like how long he has been working on that fucking movie. Just so many ideas that he's been stewing on for 30 years. It's just simmering in the back of his mind. Sounds great. Are there any last scenes or moments you want to talk about before we move on forever i'm sure something's gonna to come to mind but uh no i liked this movie a lot though i liked it more than i thought i would see and i had i like it less than i, th I than i did yeah i think it's because of my appreciation for crimson peak now mm. that this feels like crimson peak with training wheels not that that's bad. Like, that sounds really, really bad. Crimson Peak is such a superior and underrated film. And his ghost story has been perfected at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's such an effective story. And this one, it's very similar. Like, the ghost story is similar. And the problems of the humans in the story are similar. But I don't know. I'm not as invested. For me, I think it might just be that I, like, I really enjoy the characters. And yeah, like, I, I love his presentation of ghosts. I do love the beginning of the movie where we say that, like, a ghost, which we also repeat at the end, like, how a ghost can be a tragedy that repeats itself over and over, a moment of pain, perhaps. And I just like the idea that a ghost is more than just one thing. Mm -hmm. Also, I love I love that character of, of Caesar. I think he's fantastic. I wish I was the kind of person that had a morning routine that also consisted of, like, reciting a poem to myself. What I, what I loved about that moment is that it's like it's this daily mantra of his that literally touches on everything. The importance of self-respect, the pain and anguish of daily life, and the strength that you should have by enduring it, and how, like, a good prisoner should always try and break out of his cell. And it's just like, there is so much in just like a few lines that totally encapsulates every character and every human being and every struggle that you can possibly see. Yeah, it's cool that you can write a story about characters that are in a civil war that I know nothing about in a time period that I cannot fathom. Yeah. And ghosts that I don't believe in. Yeah. And still be able to relate to it on a human level. Totally. Like, you can relate to almost every single character. Which is nuts. Yeah. And that's amazing storytelling, the ability to do that. So, what's your rating? I'm gonna go three out of four. I was also gonna give a three out of four, which is interesting, because I liked it more than I thought I would. You did not like it as much as you thought it. You well, liked, I liked it less. Uh, see, I, I thought I liked it 
as much as some of his other films. Mm -hmm. And it's a little lower on my list, but it's still amazing. Yeah. And it's a pretty fantastic ghost story. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. But moving on, we are going to talk about 2006's Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. Currently sitting at an 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb, a 95% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 4 out of 4 Eberts. Another film set during the Spanish Civil War, which, like you were saying earlier, know very little about. I actually tried to read up a little bit on the Spanish Civil War. Oh! I, I still know very little about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a civil war with a lot of internal struggle, uh, commonly referred to as a... History lesson from John. So far, we learned nothing. Okay, well, here's the problem, right? Like, <laughs> there is not an episode of hardcore history about it, uh, is really what it comes down to. All of my history lessons come from either, like, early high school or podcasts. That's really, that's really about it. I get a surface level, like, hey, did you know that cement has been around for, like, fucking thousands of years? Whatever. Yeah, for me, it's like, if there wasn't a serial killer in or around that era, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Uh, well, this is definitely like a fascist regime that was being fought against by rebels, more or less. Like the people, there was an uprising and they wanted to get rid of them and guess what? They lost. Like those motherfuckers had took power Aww. and just killed as many people as they possibly could. And one of them is our main character, Ophelia's father. Yes, of course. Her, well, her stepfather. So her and her mom, also Carmen? Yeah. Oh. All right. So her and her mom are moving to his fort. Is it a house and a fort? Let's call it a compound. Yes. And she is quite pregnant. She is quite with child. Mm. Quite unfortunately, uncomfortably with child. Sick with child. She is very sick with child. Yeah. By and all definitions, definitely. Ophelia is a young kind of uh, head in the clouds girl who's very into her fiction and her stories. They really shit on her for bringing so many books. And she's got a... Like six books, maybe? Yeah. I bring more books than that on vacation. But they move to the compound... I'm really bad at doing this, so if you would like to take over, that would be wonderful. Yeah, sure. So they moved <laughs> to the compound, uh, so that way 
Oh, oh, I know exactly why. Because a boy should be born where his son is. Like, in fact, the doctors say... His father is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah, they, they warn him that, like, she should not have traveled. But, yeah, yeah, it's very important that a boy be born near his father. At, at no point in this movie does he give any kind of shits about this woman. She's just a vehicle for his son. Oh, 100%. Right? If there's any real horror in the story, like, I know there's a lot of horror in the story, but that woman's pregnancy is the horror of the story. She goes through some shit. I gotta assume her pregnancy was very similar to a lot of pregnancies back then, right? Which is what makes it so scary. Why were women having nine children? I don't know that we could chalk it up to a few different things. Mostly, uh, probably poverty is what it would come <laughs> Need down more to. hands for the farm. Oh, there's that too. Uh, you know why you're having nine kids? Because they're not all gonna make it. Like, no. that's really what it comes down to. Either, pff, war breaks out and they all get conscripted and killed, or cholera, or rats, or just a fucking steep cliff with some rocks at the Rat bottom. Rat ran away with my baby! <laughs> <laughs> Thought it was cheese! I just didn't understand why you said rats. Oh, like, like bringing disease. Yeah, rats bringing disease, okay. yeah. <laughs> so yeah she's been brought there with her mom so that way the baby can be delivered there with dad who's not her father we should probably say yeah I, how the fuck did she meet this guy is my number one question they, they never really get... ask that at Do the they? yeah at the dinner they have a dinner party and one of the the wives asks like how did you meet him her husband was his tailor that's right mm-hmm. he probably had that motherfucker killed I don't. I, I don't think that there was really a choice in becoming her, uh, becoming his wife, hmm. more or less. Their their paths definitely recrossed at a convenient time in both of their lives. There's so. not a character that this guy meets in this entire movie that he doesn't eventually kill. Literally everybody. Oh my god! And he even tries to. He doesn't try to, but he he kind of he envisions killing himself. He even inadvertently has like his left-hand man is killed his servant is killed his wife is killed his stepdaughter is killed yeah by himself his son's not killed no but his his... legacy is killed (laughs) fuck yeah right i do i do love that even when he's shaving and he catches his own glimpse in the mirror he can't help but desire to kill it i don't you don't know Nope. So he's... Um, no, remember nope. that at all? He's shaving and he stops. <laughs> he's staring at himself in the mirror, like, into his own eyes. And then he puts the knife to his neck in the mirror and slices. Just like anybody in front I of him. You don't remember that at all? I am not prepared to unpack that scene at <laughs> okay. this time. At this current juncture, I am not prepared to make a statement. Well, if it makes you feel better, I don't think at this time I was ever prepared to talk about The Devil's Backbone. I think I need to sit on that movie for another 11 years like I have this movie. P.S. This remains one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. Despite the fact that it doesn't have a whole lot of violence. It just always gets me. I think it's because it's such a surprise when it happens because you forget while watching it. This is a Grimm's fairy tale version of a Disney story. It's yeah. got all of the beats of a Disney fairy tale and the classic fairy tale, but it exists in a world where life is cruel and unfair. Mm-hmm. And it exists in a world where when you cut yourself, you will bleed. <laughs> and when you do that, it will be on camera. <laughs> There's this crazy juxtaposition of this fantasy world that's being promised to us if mm-hmm. we complete these three tasks yeah and being in the middle of a war mm-hmm. 
and you always forget that the other exists when the other is happening. Like, I forget where we're watching a fantasy when we see any of the scenes with the general, and we're watching Ophelia trying to navigate these magical mini-verses. I forget that there's a man murdering people yards away. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane. You're right. It does such a weird dance between the two. And the odd part is that there is inherent danger in that fantasy world. Like, at no point does she ever feel safe when we watch her. Even when she visits the tree frog, it's just like, yo, that motherfucker's gonna eat her head. And, like, it's it's definitely the easiest of all the tasks. Mm -hmm. But... Even... Well, you're more concerned about her fucking dress being right? dirty. You're like, you are in so much shit. You're so dirty. Like, She's fuck like... that frog. Mom's gonna be pissed. Right? Like, that's, you can tell, like, that is the, one of those moments that mom's been waiting for her entire life was giving her daughter a beautiful dress. Right? Oh, I know. Well, and you kind of get that there's not a lot of intimacy between her and the captain. Like, she's no. made this decision for the sake of her daughter, I would assume, and her son that's now coming. But Yeah, because he's so high up. She's probably playing the odds against the war, right? Like, oh, we're probably not going to win, but... This is be... our luckiest shot. They She has essentially won the lottery. I don't like to say that twice in one episode, but... In... Because no one wins the lottery more than once. I don't want to <laughs> promise it, but I mean, I did buy some Bitcoin last week, and I'm doing really well for myself <laughs> sorry i just i had to tell them john it's so funny you're not proud of me yet. You know, the... <laughs> you're like oh i i just did it let's let, let's see where it goes but in your mind you've bought a 20 dollars lottery ticket in my mind i want to buy more lottery tickets no i uh i'm just you know i'm working towards fixing the car radio and uh that's my goal i got a new phone it's got a really loud speaker we're fine it says that the door is open when the door is not open, John. <laughs> Look, I'm not made of car radios, <laughs> and like, okay, John, lady? And passenger door open. You're like, the light's not on. It's fine. <laughs> like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Uh... Uh, and that's the story of uh, our car. Yeah. That we drive all over the place, across the country, to conventions. You know, it's all uh, it's all safe and entertaining in that silent death trap. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my Bitcoin will save us all. Hopefully. It'd be crazy when, like, if this episode comes out and Bitcoin is worth, like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and this forever remains a time capsule of that wonderful period where everybody was rich. <laughs> oh my god, this imaginary currency is so valuable. Well, apparently I read this article yesterday because I'm all hot to the coin right now. Yeah. Uh, Are you really calling it the coin? <laughs> No, I just made that up right now. I okay. think that's a really good turn of phrase, though. Hot to the coin. Okay. I got my notes in the bit. Um, <laughs> Churning them out now. The two guys, the twins that um, Zuckerberg shafted with Facebook. Yeah. They sold their shares in Facebook and apparently like, put them all into Bitcoin when Bitcoin was like super cheap. And now they're billionaires again. Again. They're, I don't think they ever the first... stopped being billionaires. Well, they're the first Bitcoin billionaires. Based solely on the movie and how they presented them. I know nothing about the... If I believe it, anything is it. Justin Timberlake and his interpretation. Oh, boy. <laughs> Did Timberlake play Zuckerberg? Who played Zuckerberg? Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, I was going to say Jesse Eisenberg should play Zuckerberg. Should play? Should play. Did play. I know. Good decision. Okay. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> Let's talk about the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> By the way, this is actually five years after the Civil War. Just a little heads up there. Is it actually? Yeah. Yeah. So Devil's Backbone is last year of the Civil War, and then yeah. this one is five years following when they're dealing with all of the remaining rebels and the kind of 
forest factions. <laughs> That's really interesting. I know that Guillermo del Toro has has talked about these two being companion films. Mm-hmm. Like brother indirectly, yeah, yeah, indirectly. Like it's it, he didn't set out to do it, but they are essentially like mirror images of each other, like a brother and sister film, more or less. Devil's Backbone does not necessarily end on a happy note in terms of like the political climate, and you know, based on history, neither really does Pan's Labyrinth, but it does have this moment of the good guys are going to win. Mm-hmm. Like it has a happier ending, despite the fact that they do not go on to really do anything like they have to wait a few more decades until the franco regime just kind of crumbles after his death it really isn't until like the late 70s that things really start to turn around and also i don't know anything about the political climate that's okay i'm moving away from it so I'm, like, I'm moving away from it it's fine but ophelia dies at the end of this movie and you know like for her that's mainly tragic and in the end of devil's backbone carlos is not dead he's totally fine but they are like photo negatives of each other right like, the world that Carlos lives in is now dark and depressing, whereas Ophelia's, at least in the quote-unquote real world, things are looking upward. Well, yeah, and if you also believe the fantastical ending, she's in a alternate universe that's gold and glittery. Yeah, I'm going to ask you your final thoughts on that soon, but we really can't gloss over Doug Jones, right? That's what I was going to say. Like, can yeah. we fucking talk about... <laughs> I saw your eyes widen so hard when I started to mention the end of this movie. We have shit to say about that fable on its own is so fucking fabulous. Mm-hmm. Just how much you can gather from this tiny little story just by the camera panning the room, how there's this full splay of food and all these ornate dishes and desserts and there's this monster sitting there completely still and slumbering some way with the the flappy loose skin yeah. and the blackened long talon fingers and the nose holes. Oh, like... I don't think there's been a better creature design in the last 20 years. There's yeah. some there's some really good creature designs. There's a lot of things that come close, like Krampus from Mike Do- Doherty. Do you really think Krampus is going to like stand the test of time? Uh, it's hard because it's not an original figure. It's an interpretation of something existing. And the... What is his name? The He's got a name, and I can't remember it. The figure. Something? I, yeah, I think it's Pale Man or something. He has such a good showmanship when he wakes up and he takes the eyeballs from the plate in their sockets in his palm. Yeah. And he puts them in and there's a squidgy sound and the eyeballs are red and there's just so... It's just so amazing. When he fans his hands out to see and he lumbers around. Every time you see it, you remember the first time you saw it. And it's just... It's it's unlike anything you've seen. Watching the movie the first time, you knew that this movie was unlike anything you'd ever seen before, and a movie that you would watch forever. At least I felt that way. I'm sure yeah, you probably I, did too. I remember seeing it. It came to theaters when I was in high school, and I wanted to see it because I thought it was going to be this dark fairy tale. That's all I really knew about it. Yeah. But I didn't realize how dark, and I also wasn't into foreign film yet i think i was still too young to be into foreign film and to see it come to theaters and Mm. be something that was like sold to me and marketed to me it just opened the door like intellectually i was like i need to watch art films (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know there's something about that monster that is just so fucking wild Mm -hmm. yeah and like doug jones 
has forever been just like one of the greatest physical actors in Hollywood. And again, still have not seen Shape of Water. I really hope he gets a fucking award for it. <laughs> like just, just based on the premise alone. And like the guy does incredible work. So I can only imagine that if this film has Oscar buzz, surely his performance will as well. I don't think so. The guy in the monster suit doesn't get the credit. <laughs> It depends how moving that performance is, though, right? Like, maybe not, though. I, I, I get it. It's, it's going to be thanks mostly to, at least according to the Academy, the, the effects of department and, uh, and the, the lead actress. For how many times I've seen Pan's Labyrinth, I kind of wish, knowing the first time you see it, that, like, oh, this is, this is a movie that's going to stick with me forever. I wish I had have kept a tally of how many times I've seen that movie. I don't know a lot of people that are huge into foreign film, but they all watch this movie, and I don't know a single person that watches it with any sort of dubbing. It's all subtitles. And it's funny you mentioned that Guillermo del Toro actually did the captions in this film. Oh, wow. He did them himself because he, he, I think it was The Devil's Backbone, he did not like how it was translated for English viewers mm. because you lose some of the eloquence in the words that they're saying, which makes sense because there's a lot of poetry in that movie. I wonder if he redid it for the Criterion Collection. And so, that, that's a good question. It's kind of wonderful that in not speaking Spanish, we're not losing anything in the translation because Guillermo del Toro has essentially approved the yeah. words that we're reading. Yeah. Which means that we're getting all of the... We're not losing anything. We're yeah. getting all of the meanings and all of the thoughts and the words and stuff and nothing that wouldn't necessarily translate quite literally is lost. Yeah, yeah, rather than it being just like a straight translation where you... Gatorade translates into, like, alligator juice, you know? You're like, eh, well, that's fine. Yeah, whatever. My favorite thing about captions, and I like to watch things with captions now kind of exclusively because uh, I don't pay very good attention. <laughs> and you get more, I think, when you can hear all of the words. You don't realize how few of the words you actually pay attention to until you watch an English-speaking movie with captions. Mm. But my favorite thing is the interpretations of the music because they won't just write, a song is playing. Yeah. They'll put, like... Somber, ominous tones Yeah, like... Certain. <laughs> apathetic music and you're like what does that mean <laughs> like i don't know captioner you're trying to input your own opinion into my viewing experience i don't remember what it was but like let's let's just say for example it was one of the saw movies where it's like a small puppet is heard walking on screen you're like okay well all i heard were footprints i don't know that it's a small puppet thank you for ruining that reveal yeah. okay then a ghost can be heard <laughs> you're like a ghost <laughs> what can you imagine if we did a scripted video? It would sound just like that last 30 seconds. Oh, we should do a scripted video. It'd be fantastic. Oh, man. We would never get hired again. We would oh, do for sure we one would. big movie, and then we'd be out. <laughs> yeah. We're not even going to pay you because you ate the entire craft services table. <laughs> I really like pineapple and tortillas. I'm sorry. I feel like we have glossed over so much of this movie. So after the pale man, the man with the hands... Ophelia eats two grapes or something off his table, and she's not supposed to eat anything. And the fairies, who have been kind of guiding her along this journey, two of them get eaten mm -hmm. by the pale man, and she beetlejuices her way out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and the fawn, who's kind of the master of affairs for the fantasy land, yeah. is fucking pissed, and he is over her. She's not the secret princess. He's not giving her her third task. She can't go to the world. Whatever. And this is kind of all while well, shit's really going down at home. The main housekeeper, Mercedes, 
is a secret rebel. She's kind of working both sides. She works for the general. It seems like everybody close to this guy is a rebel. Like, even the doctor, right? Yeah, secretly a rebel. Um, Her brother is one of the actual rebels, the rebel soldiers, who's living kind of in the woods around the compound. Mm -hmm. And she's secretly snatching stuff from the storeroom and getting medical aid and stuff. And her, in partnership with the doctor, are trying to keep these rebels alive in the woods. (laughs) Yeah. And all this shit's going down. The general's starting to figure out what's going on. He's going, like, batshit crazy murdering people. And her her mom, Ophelia's mom, is going into labor. And it's... Shit's not going well at home. And her fantasy life, this alternate universe that's been promised her, is also kind of crumbling. Yeah. And very literally and very figuratively, her life is a war zone. Yeah. <laughs> Shit is chaotic. And at some point, she has to kind of just navigate her way through it. The last task is really interesting. In the sense that the, the fawn basically says, like, we need a drop of his blood. Like, and uh, it's all good. Well, he doesn't say that outright. He says to, he gives her the task in stages. So the baby brother is born, which ends up killing her mother. Mm -hmm. And the general's going fucking insane, murdering everybody. She's not safe. She's going to be definitely killed. Yeah. And she kidnaps the boy and takes him to the labyrinth. And when she gets there, the fawn is telling her that she needs to spill just a drop of his blood on the the entrance for it to open. And she refuses. She doesn't want to touch the boy at all. While she was stealing the baby, the general saw, so he's been chasing her through the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. He makes it through to the center, and he sees her talking to nobody. Yeah. He fatally shoots her and takes the baby, and she's lying there dying, and the blood drips down into the entrance. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great moment where all these three stories kind of swirl together. The fantasy world, this evil general, and then the rebels. Because Mm -hmm. the rebels are outside the labyrinth when he steps out with the baby. And he knowingly gives the baby to Mercedes. Then they they kill him. And then we cut back to Ophelia, who is kind of taking her last breaths. And as she dies, she enters this land of the underworld. And a version of her mom and her father are there on these huge thrones, and she joins them. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the fawn comes out and tells her that that was the real task, to do something honorable and to spill her own blood yeah. rather than that of an innocent. And that was to kind of see if she was truly worthy. So I've got two questions for you here uh, regarding the end of the movie, and really, I guess, the entire movie in general. Uh, one, do you really think there's a fantasy land? And secondly, do you care if it's a fantasy land or not? Yeah, I... I mean, I always err on the side of no, because I think that it really enhances the actual story if it's not true. And I said this while we were watching the comparisons I made between the Thin Man and the General. When she's being chased by the Thin Man, even with like his eyes, he's kind of lumbering around. So is the general when he's chasing her when she's trying to get the baby because she's drugged him. Mm -hmm. And they kind of do the same lumbering steps. And it's kind of cool to see this fantastical world mirrored in her real life world. Well, also, even in that task, she's not allowed to eat anything. And it's around the same time that we see the rations being uh, dispersed. Like the general is, he is essentially the person who has all of the food. Yeah, and he's sitting atop all of the food for the, the area. And I'd also kind of works out too in a way that this is how a child would understand the world she's living in especially if she's 
a girl that believes so much in stories and fantasy, she could in her head be putting it into a, a frame in which she can view it for what it is. Yeah. But I think Guillermo del Toro intended it to be real. But I don't think it matters. I think the fact that it could be both or neither or one or the other is what makes this so successful. Totally. Yeah, that, that ambiguity is, is what I'm attracted to and probably why I continue to go back. Because it's really, I, th I think it just depends on what mood I'm in and how I feel like watching the movie that day, whether I think that it's real or not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't It doesn't have to be real and it doesn't have to be a fantasy. Like, I think it can be watched either way. And I think, like you're saying, it's it's just as important. It's either an incredibly poetic and dark story that it's completely set in the real world and it's just in her head and this is the only way that she can rationalize the horror that she lives in. But I also think it's, it's fantastic and it's kind of a happy ending to a horrific story to see that the fantasy world is real. I don't know, like, I, I like watching it both ways and I have no preference. Yeah, I, I think I always just watch it as it doesn't really matter in the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately for her, whether there's a fantasy world or not, the precipice is death. She has to cross through death. And that unknown is mm -hmm. what happens on the on the other side is kind of like in the eye of the be beholder, right? What if what if that fantasy land is like that infinite moment before the synapses in your brain shut off? Like, who knows? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think it, it's both and neither. Is there anything else in the the movie that we didn't really touch on? Because like, there's so much in this fucking movie. Yeah, I feel like we barely even touched on the film. But um, <laughs> I'm like everybody else. I think Thin Man is amazing. I forget when I watch this film how little fantasy it is. Mm. You really are not even getting a look at the fantasy world. You get a taste of the creatures in it. But this is about getting to the fantasy world. And we don't get to see inside. Yeah. And if you asked me the color palette of the film, I would say, like, bright reds and golds. But when you're watching the movie, it's greens and browns and blacks. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's a lot of drab colors. A very bleak and dark film. You forget one for the other. And I think the fantasy is what dominates your memory because it's so interesting and bold. But the story of the general and his wife and Ophelia and their kind of power struggle is ultimately the story of the film. Mm-hmm. And you forget how much of the movie it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Two things that I kind of want to touch on real quick. Uh, one real quick scene where the uh, the doctor is amputating one of the rebels' legs. Again, shocking to see when it happens. But what I love about that moment is where he's about to saw through and he stops and goes, like, uno momento, por favor. <laughs> and he, he just looks at oh, his leg. Oh, he takes a moment leg, having a leg? Just, just looking at it like, ah, yes. I will miss him. <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> like, no, I think he was just taking a moment to feel what it was like having both legs to make a memory yeah, of that. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I mean. Like, he's just, I'm never going to see it again. It's never going to be like this. Yeah. Thank God for people who give side characters like that so much fucking emotion. And right? Like, like, real meat behind them. Mm -hmm. The Doctor is a real character that you feel for. Mercedes is a real character that you feel for. Half of the friggin' people running around the woods you feel for. And in terms of ghost stories and how we're all haunted, he's going to have a phantom limb the rest of his life but he's never going to actually see that leg anymore oh man i would pay good money to see guillermo del toro tackle a phantom limb movie right that'd be so to great. make that like a poetic horror gothic horror the phantom limb <laughs> the phantom limb of elderly hall oh god i'm there 
I'll buy tickets right now. I'll crowdsource that movie. Okay, so we both know that we're both giving this movie a four out of four. Totally. And there's only one other thing that I want to talk about. I'm oh really my God. sorry. I can't shut up about it. Uh, <laughs> the pocket watch mm-hmm. that the general has, I think, is a perfect mirroring of Ophelia's story. I think it's just a weird thing that he has, but it's such brilliant writing. How there's a pocket watch that his father gave him that he crushed so his son would always know the moment that his father died. And then that watch is given to him, which he then pieces back together and plans to break. And when he's standing in front of the rebels, you know, he's, he's like, you know, tell my son that his father was a was an honorable, or maybe not honorable man, but like, they, they cut him off and says, oh, he's, he's never going to know who you are, and they shoot him. And he has a moment of realizing that his legacy is over, and that's everything. But I, I, I do like that with Ophelia, to enter into that fantasy realm, that the price of admission is death. And for the legacy of this man and his son and his son's son, the price of admission there is also death. Like, there is this totem that they hand each other mm. that is only given to them after they're gone. It's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like for these characters, like for Ophelia, she is t- fated to be the princess and maybe eventually queen of this fantasy realm. And for these guys that are, you know, like ostensibly Nazis, we'll say, P.S., I mean, like Spain did get some support from, from Nazi Germany, but they are trying to give their sons the world. Yeah, I think the kind of what I interpreted it as was that him piecing the watch together was him spending his entire life trying to get out from under the shadow of his father, who was kind of, he was this like the greatest general that ever was, and he is trying to make a name for himself, and that he's painstakingly spending his entire life rebuilding this watch to pass it along to his son, to pass his own legacy, like the watch is his now, and Mm -hmm. he's not passing along his grandfather's watch, he's passing along his watch, and for it to all have meant nothing is so big. Yeah, because just killing that guy would not be enough. It wouldn't necessarily hurt him. He almost fetishizes and fantasizes about that moment. Well, because I'm, I'm assuming he knew he was always going to go out like that. Oh, definitely. And you can see him kind of taunting it out of the rebels. He wants them to come out of their hiding space. He wants them to We, Yeah, uh, when he hears them in the woods, he's literally just, ca- like, standing there calling out to them. This is an era where there were lots of guns. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they could have just shot them had they have had the the power at that yeah. moment. But he knew he was going to have a son and he's on easy street at that point. As long as he knows he's going to have a son, everything's fine. That's why he doesn't give a shit about anybody except this unborn child. The legacy things for children always is such a weird thing for me because as a child of someone, <laughs> I don't know, there's, you think that some people don't realize that there's a separate conscious from your offspring to you. You know what I mean? Like, he's not passing along any consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's just a memory or an idea. And even then, you can't guarantee that that person is going to hold that dear. Children are always a gamble. <laughs> like Bitcoin. <laughs> no, it's bet on Bitcoin. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. not kids. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> but yes, definitely four out of four. For sure. No questions. I am really sad people don't like Crimson Peak. Oh. Because... I mean, hey, we came around. They. I care. know. Having having rediscovered Crimson Peak and having fallen in love with it, I watch these movies and they make me want to watch Crimson Peak. Yeah. And hearing him, uh, there's there's an audio component, like a guided tour for at, at Home with Monsters at the AGO where Guillermo del Toro talks about, you know, specific points in the exhibit. And to hear him talk about Edith in Crimson Peak as a final girl was fascinating. I don't think I've ever 
thought it, it's silly to say because I mean like she is the one person who survives at the end and I know and but you still to... see her as like a wilting flower and you think about it and you're like yeah she you don't need no man no not at all she is like the perfect final girl who almost transcends the idea of one in the genre she sleeps with her husband right like she does this thing that you're not supposed to do she loses her virginity she has sex she but that doesn't make her weak in fact it makes her stronger she gets closer to him she finds the truth and at the end it isn't well, like and that also, ghost. too, kind of cracks him because he goes from villain to kind of assisting hero. Yeah, but it's not necessarily thanks to him that she lives. It's not like he comes back as a ghost and saves the day and she's able to say thank you before he disappears into the sky. Um, he is maybe a small distraction, which gives Edith the ability to fight her attacker and save herself, as well as the, you know, miscast doctor. <laughs> I can't wait to watch the movie again and just look at her as, a, as like, the perfect final girl. It sounds great, but uh, I'm finding new and new reasons to love that movie every day is really what it comes to. And the thing about Guillermo del Toro is that he is just full of creations, mm -hmm. and he has like dozens of notebooks that are filled with doodles and stories, and I can't wait till we get another ghost story from him. Mm -hmm. And I'm really enthusiastic. Like, whenever a creative person gets something really acclaimed, I feel so enthusiastic. I'm like, they're going to get money for a project that they've been really, really dying to do. But I hope studios don't snatch them up and it's like, coming soon from Guillermo del Toro, another Batman. And you're like, fuck! <laughs> It'll be cool, but fuck! <laughs> I don't want it. I want Haunted Mansion. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Either way, that's it from us this week. Head over to Twitter at NOFS Podcast and vote on this week's poll. Which movie do you think is the better Guillermo del Toro film? The Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth? Thanks again for listening, guys. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're getting this episode so you can catch the next one in your feed. We release every Thursday. And when the fuck is Christmas? We have another episode before Christmas, right? Do we? I think we do. Okay. So, no Christmas greetings for you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the... Uh, oh, Christmas is soon. I think this is the... <laughs> no, it's not! <laughs> I think this might be our, our episode closest to Christmas. Oh my god, Merry Possible Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you guys haven't checked them out, our pins are now available on the web store. We have enamel pins. The very first of the Cinema Cemetery collection. Yeah, go check it out at store.nofspodcast.com. And while you're there, we do have a super awesome website with tons of articles and cool news and stuff and a whole team of amazing contributors who write stuff every day. So head to just regular nofspodcast.com and check out all that stuff. But we'll catch you again next week, maybe Christmasites. Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Ow! Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at NOFS Podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends.